Welcome to the Think Podcast, the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective with your host, Joel Sedekes. And now, get ready to think. Sometimes you pick a title that works. Sometimes you pick a title that everybody agrees on and it's just wonderful. And um, everybody thinks, man, that is just a great title. It's, it's clickable, it's succinct, it's descriptive. And then other times, other times you pick a title where um, you think it's brilliant. You, you think, man, this is gonna be the most clickable, wonderful, descriptive title. It's gonna cause people to question. It's gonna cause people to wanna know more. And then, and then your guest sends you an email and says, Joel, you flaming idiot. What were you thinking with that title? And that is the situation that we almost had today with Elizabeth Urbanowitz, my guest. Now, before I before before we bring her on here, she's waiting in the green room right now. She's laughing. Um, let's let's set things up here. As Christian parents, we have been entrusted with making disciples of our kids, and that means teaching them to obey everything that Christ has commanded, according to Matthew twenty eight nineteen and twenty. If truly free thinking is possible only when it's built upon the solid foundation of Christ's teaching, Matthew 7, 24, then Christian parents had better learn how to instill a Christian worldview in their children, and there is no time to lose. Now, let me tell you about my guest who's going to help us with this today. Elizabeth Urbanowitz earned her B.S., from Gordon College in Elementary Education and Spanish, and her MS Ed in Christian Apologetics from Biola University. She spent a decade, that's 10 years for you non-math majors, as an elementary teacher at a Christian school. She's the author of the Foundation Comparative Worldview Curriculum, and her work has helped to equip countless children and families like yours with the knowledge and skills to disciple children in the biblical worldview. In this very special twofer, a Tuesday twofer episode of the Think Podcast, that's when you get two Christian thinkers for the price of one, always free. She joins me, Joel Sedekes, to discuss her curriculum and how to properly and powerfully prepare, not indoctrinate, your kids in order to reason in a biblical way. Even if you don't have kids, this is an episode you don't want to miss. And so, without any further ado, Elizabeth Urbanowitz, welcome to the Think Podcast, and I'm so sorry about our previous title. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me on, Joel. And you know what? I was actually really perfect because I'm in the process of developing a new speaking contract. And I was like, oh, this is a clause that needed to be that needs to be added that before any promotional material goes live, it needs to be approved by someone on my team because I saw it and I was like, uh oh, I'm going to yeah. find the exact opposite thing of this title. We don't indoctrinate. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> Well, um, good. I'm glad. I'm glad I could help you. Uh, you know, sort through some of you know, <laughs> the stuff for your your promo team. Um, yeah. So I originally picked the title "indoctrinate" because it's such a controversial word. Nobody wants to indoctrinate or be indoctrinated, and yet the old school definition of that word, as we discussed backstage, is to instill values, principles, and mm -hmm. doctrine in somebody. But you don't like that word. Why don't you like that word, Elizabeth? 
Well, as we talked about a little bit backstage, you know, while ideas are objective, you know, like they're either true or they're false, the words that we use to attach to those ideas might be changing. And so, you know, if we were talking back in the 1800s, the word indoctrinate, you know, simply meant to instill with a set of values and principles. Where now, if you look at the definition in most dictionaries, you will find tagged on the end is not just to instill principles, but to ask people to accept them un critically. And so that's exactly what we don't want our kids to do because there is such right. a plethora of ideas out there. We don't want them to accept anything uncritically. We want them to carefully think through everything that they accept. So if we're using the 1800s definition of indoctrinate, you know, there's parts of it that, you know, we want to do, but definitely not the modern definition of indoctrination. Totally, totally. And I'm, I'm glad you explained that. I knew we would have explained that uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, but um, but so I changed the title. Maybe I'll need to change it again before this goes live. Let, let me know. But who's indoctrinating your kids? And and mm -hmm. the reason why I did that, why, uh, why I changed it to that is because um, as I think is going to be made clear, teaching your kids the Christian worldview in a certain sense is you're entering into a battlefield. You're entering into, it's warfare. It's ideological warfare in a certain, uh, maybe you don't like that um, analogy and feel free to, you know, to let me know that and challenge that. But the idea is we are either teaching our kids to think critically and biblically and wisely and faithfully, or by default, they're in danger of uncritically accepting the world's assumptions, the world's worldview and an unbiblical pattern of thinking. Do you, do you, do you like that explanation or do you take issue with that? Well, I think it's biblical because when you look, I mean, throughout all of the epistles in the New Testament, you know, we're given this language of warfare, you know, that our mm -hmm. battle is not against flesh and blood. You know, in Ephesians, we're told to put on the full armor of God. And so we are in an ideological battle. You know, in Colossians, Paul taught, tells us to never be taken captive by any hollow and deceptive philosophies. You know, and then in 2 Corinthians, we're supposed to be active. On my end, Elizabeth is frozen. If you guys watching can see her and hear her, if she's still going, let me know. She looks totally frozen to me. So let us know. But um, Elizabeth is the, the creator of the Foundation Comparative Worldview Curriculum. And today we are talking about, um, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Someone's car is getting towed outside. Uh, well, this is this is a fun. This is a, a great episode right off the bat. We got the wrong title. I've got people coming in here, and uh, someone's car is getting towed. So, we it looks like we lost Elizabeth for a minute here. But if you can see and hear me, let me know. Um, and what we're talking about today is how to instill a biblical worldview in your kids and. Elizabeth Urbanowitz is really the perfect person to bring on for this because she's the creator of the foundation. Okay, look good. Looks like she's back here. I'm going to bring her back on. Okay. Hi, Sorry. Elizabeth Urbanowitz. Sorry about that. <laughs> all good. All good. By far, not the worst technical difficulties we've had. Um, we've definitely had much, much worse. So, um, so welcome back. And now, you. if you could, um, Elizabeth, if you could let us know, just tell us some of your story. Is this something that you've always been passionate about, the biblical worldview, teaching it to kids? How did you get to where you are today? 
Yes, that's a great question. And it aligns with what you were saying before about being in this ideological battle that I always knew from a young age that I wanted to become a teacher. I just, it's just how God has gifted me. And I love teaching people things. I love seeing success of students. And I loved my job as a teacher in an elementary school. And I was always passionate about equipping my kids to understand the truth of the Christian worldview. And one thing that I noticed is as I was teaching, I was you know, passionately teaching God's word every day. And these students in my classroom, they came from great Christian homes. Most of them were fairly involved in church, but I noticed little by little that they were blindly accepting these ideas from the culture without ever questioning them, similar to the way that they were just blindly accepting Christianity. And I saw both ends of the spectrum. Like just one quick example would be one day when I was teaching I was using a projector to project something on the board, you know, the slide deck and the projector went on the fritz and I gave my students an assignment to do. I turned around to fiddle with the wires and one of my students goes, guys, this situation is so stressful. We need to meditate to stay calm. And from the time it took for me to hear that comment and turn around and look at my students, half of them were on the floor with their legs, you know, crisscrossed and their arms out like this going, um, um, and I was like, what the heck? Like, where did they learn to meditate like this? And I was like, guys, we need to pause and we need to talk about this. Like, this is not the type of meditation that comes from scripture that God has, you know, commanded us to do. It comes from Eastern religions and just like blank stares on their face. You know, I might as well have been speaking to them in an Eastern religion. And so I just saw them absorbing these ideas from the culture. But then I also saw them not really understanding why the biblical worldview was true. They just knew the Jesus answer. And they knew how to say Jesus as the answer to every question. One time I gave a science test and we were talking about, we had been learning about photosynthesis and, you know, like the process that plants go through to use sunlight and carbon dioxide. And, you know, I asked the students on the test, you know, explain the process of photosynthesis to me. And one student just wrote, Jesus made the plants so that they will use photosynthesis. You know, and I called to my desk and I was like, like, yes, I'm so glad you know God is the creator and sustainer of the universe. But like, let's talk about the scientific principle behind this. And so I saw these examples in my class and I thought, man, you know, right now when the, my students are in third grade, I am one of the top voices in their mind. So they're going to believe the things that I tell them. No matter what I tell them, they're going to believe that it's true. But do I really want that? Because then, you know, next year, five years, 10 years, when I'm no longer the top competing voice in their life, do I just want them to believe whatever competing voice is there and no. And so that's what got me really passionate about looking into how can we equip these children that God has placed in our care to think critically and to understand the truth of the Christian worldview. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sorry, I'm laughing at the, uh, the photosynthesis explanation. <laughs> you know, that, I mean, uh, okay, okay, kid, you know, technically that's true. Yes. Right. But that's not what we're looking for here. And, uh, yeah, I, I imagine that that's probably not even uh, the only story that you have of something funny happening when you were a teacher. But why, Elizabeth Urbanowitz, why did you give up being a teacher to go and pursue worldview education full time? I mean, you obviously saw the need for it. Mm -hmm. Okay, but but why not just do that and incorporate that into your, your teaching at, there at the Christian school? Why go and do this full time? Well, actually doing this at the Christian school and incorporating my teaching there is how I started and was my plan <laughs> all along that this kind of got changed along the way. So once I saw this, this real need 
in my students, I thought, okay, I need to go out there and find out who's doing something about this and how can I use the materials that they have to really transform these kids that God has placed in my care. So I, you know, like I searched the far corners of the internet, you know, for who is doing, you know, like worldview education, specifically comparative worldview education so that kids are not only learning what the biblical worldview teaches, but they're actually systematically evaluating teachings from competing worldviews. So I ordered every single thing that I could find and nothing that I ordered actually systematically went through and taught kids like, hey, these are big worldview questions. Here's how scripture answers them. Here's how other worldviews answer them. Let's actually go through and evaluate the truthfulness of these ideas, see where they align, where they don't align. And so I thought, okay, well, nobody's doing this. So, you know, I've taken a couple classes. I'm a reader. You know, I have really smart friends. I can translate this down. Um, and so I just started translating these ideas down for kids and putting them in ways that I knew were educationally sound, that aligned with God's design for the child mind. And I just, you know, like I just worked with my students and I saw this transformation that all of a sudden, you know, they went from, you know, not thinking about hardly anything to thinking about everything. You know, they were wanting to pause family movie night and evaluate the characters' worldviews. And moms were calling me being like, help, like, this is great. I'm so excited. My son wants to do this, but I don't know what's going on. And other teachers were coming down to me from the older grade levels. I'm like, how do you get the students in your class to think like this? Like, they're thinking more critically through literature and mathematics and science than I ever have. Like, I haven't even thought about these things. And I was like, I just, you know, like, I've just exposed them to these basic ideas of competing worldviews. And all this sudden they realize like, hey, I have a responsibility in this. Like I need to, you know, carefully evaluate every idea that comes my way. So it was so exciting. And when that happened, you know, word spreads. So I started getting calls from people across the country, like, hey, we hear about this neat program you're running. How can we get our hands on it? And I was kind of like, you know, I don't have anything for you. I'm a third grade teacher. I'm not a curriculum developer. I'm not a publishing house. Like, I'm really sorry, but I don't have anything, but that kept happening for several years until eventually I was like, okay, there's something here. If people are coming to me, it means that, you know, I really have found an area that's kind of untapped right now. So I went, I realized that if I was going to publish something, you know, I needed a degree to, I need to actually, you know, earn my wings to make sure that I knew what I was talking about. So that's when I went back to school at Biola to get an apologetics degree. And halfway through that, I left teaching, not because I, I wanted to leave. Like I, I love teaching. I love working with kids, but, um, doing a full-time grad degree and full-time curriculum publishing left very little time for teaching. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of how, how I got where I am today. That makes sense. And this is your day job now, correct? Yes, that is correct. This is this is what you do. Yeah. Um, so as as you are approaching churches, schools, parents, who, who where do you where do you promote your curriculum? Do you go to conventions? Do you go to different schools individually? And you know, how do you introduce I've looked at your website. The website is incredible. It's great. In fact, I'm actually, as you're, as you're talking, I want to pull it up so everybody can see this. Um, it's very, very well done. It's very informative. You've got, you've got video, you've got, um, it's, it's, it's very purchasable. It's very like, 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 yes, I want to click on that purchase now button. But when you're, when you're introducing this to an institution, how do you present it? That's another great question. So we have, you know, three main markets of, you know, that we want to help equip kids. We want to help equip all kids. And the way that we do that is through approaching churches. And that's either through their Sunday school or their kids ministry program, or also through family discipleship opportunities. And then we also 
um, approach Christian schools, you know, for use in the classroom. And then also families who are either families that are interested just in regular discipleship or families that are homeschooling their kids. And so we get the word out in a variety of ways, you know, in podcasts and interviews and radio programs, similar to what we're doing right now. Uh, we, I also speak at a bunch of different conferences every year. And so those, some of those are Christian school conferences. Some of them are missions conferences. Some of them are apologetics conferences. Some of them are just, you know, sometimes a church will reach out and say, hey, we want to equip the parents and the ministry leaders at our church to think this way and to get our kids thinking this way. So it just depends. Um, our goal at Foundation Worldview is to equip as many children as possible to understand why they can confidently place their trust in the worldview that is presented in scripture in the God of the Bible. Okay, and you, in your curriculum, you identify five questions, or you address five main mm -hmm. topics, at least this is, as I was looking through, this is um, what I saw. Basically, it, it looks like you're addressing the question of truth, of worship, origins, identity, and morality. Mm -hmm. So how'd you come up with these five? And do mm -hmm. you wish you'd included anything else? Those are two great questions. I don't know that I've ever been asked. I don't know that I've ever been asked the second question before. I've been asked the first one. Well, <laughs> um, so. I've, I've, de I've developed a worldview curriculum myself. And I know that mm -hmm. I, I had to, that was one of the hardest parts was coming up with my, my core questions. So I'm just curious mm -hmm. as to, you know, what was your process in that? Well, part of it, Part of it, actually coming up with the core questions wasn't that difficult simply because I, at the time that I was creating this, I was like living, eating, breathing, sleeping the life of an eight, nine-year-old child. You know, that was my world day in and day out. And so I knew the questions that were really important for them to be able to answer just where they were in their phase of life and also what they were going to be facing both in the culture and, you know, just at school and in family things in general. So started off with the question of truth, simply because in this culture, you know, you, you know, as some who works in you know like in missions and in helping people understand the gospel that we have to do kind of pre-evangelism you know that traditionally we've started off with god you know and who god is where we're living in this postmodern pluralistic society so we really have to start off with the idea of truth because if we just jump right. into the idea of god you know it's like oh well well that's nice that's what you believe how how lovely where we have to you know like take a step back and do this pre-evangelism of does truth exist and if it does what what is it how do we determine it can we determine it you know are there certain things we can know certain things we can't know is all truth just preference so we actually have to establish that before then we go into the character and nature of god and then obviously you know god is very you know god is is central he's foundational <laughs> to any worldview so we have to look in so we look at the question of what should i worship we look at the concept of worship what it means to worship something and then we look at you know like how who is this god that has revealed himself in the Bible, what is his character and nature? And then we look at the gods um, or the objects of worship of other worldviews. And we look at how are any of these gods similar to the Christian God or are they vastly different? You know, how how is your thought and your behavior going to be affected by this object of worship that you have? Um, the life one, you know, the question about the origin of life, that was a very simple one because, you know, we're faced all the time with this question of, you know, how did life begin? You know, what does it mean to be human? Those two questions are, you know, very closely tied together. And then the question, 
that question, who am I or what does it mean to be human? That's a huge one that our kids are facing. You know, this generation, they there has never been another generation that has been faced with so many truth questions about gender and sexuality. Right. And so understanding what it means to be human and what it means to be created in God's image and what it means to be like this duality of body and soul, it's just foundational that kids understand that. And then morality is closely tied into both the questions of meaning and destiny. And so we kind kind of have that tied in there in the question of morality of, you know, how do we determine right from wrong? What is, you know, like, what is the purpose of how we live and where is everything headed? So we kind of package, kind of sneak those, you know, those really important questions yeah. into that last question about morality. So that's, that's the way I came up with it was just knowing, you know, what, you know, what is an eight, a nine, a 10 year old facing? What is their world involved and what do they really need to know in this cultural moment? Okay. So, that makes perfect sense. I, I like how you said you were eating, sleeping, and breathing the life of a, a nine and ten year old. <laughs> uh, I used to teach high school, and I can very much okay. relate. It was funny when um, I used to teach at a Christian high school, and I would find myself with my wife explaining everything, spelling everything out, and, <laughs> and um, she's like, "Joe, you don't have to spell. I, I'm an adult. You don't have to spell everything out." <laughs> oh yeah, right, right. My my freshman. Uh, need that but you don't would you yeah. have, would you have included any different topics elizabeth if this was a curriculum for adults are these is this are these the topics that our kids need to know about but maybe adults have better figured out or would you keep the same five topics if you were creating a curriculum for adults well, if I were creating a curriculum for adults, you know, there's going to be obvious places where I would go in deeper or okay. use different language. Sure. So there would definitely be changes I would make if I was writing a curriculum specifically targeting adults. I think the concepts, these big questions, I would keep the same because I still think that they're foundational and that they're really important. Again, if I hadn't, if in that morality question, you know, like I hadn't included meaning and destiny, I would say I want, I would want to include those, but we have purposefully included those in there. You know, the interesting thing for adults, well, two things. First of all, the curriculum that I've created, we have, we do all the teaching through video. So we have instructor lesson plans and guides, but we have a five minute video for every lesson for the instructor, for the adult to watch, because a lot of times adults haven't been trained to think this way. So we right. just give them a heads up on what the lesson is, the concepts we're oh. covering, what questions kids might ask. And then we actually have a video that does the teaching for the adults. Just because I knew that when I was a teacher, anytime I was asked to teach something I wasn't comfortable with, I either didn't do it or I didn't do it well. <laughs> so we wanted to take that pressure off. And what we find is that a lot of adults say that they are learning, they learn so much through watching the videos as they go along with whether it's the kids in their household or or the kids at their church or the kids in their classroom. With adults, the interesting thing is, is when the reason that I want to start with, you know, like eight, nine, 10 year olds is because they are just learning how to critically think. So when you start at this level, you're actually being formational. You're actually setting those bricks in the foundation the right way. Where when you when you start this training later in high school, college, adulthood, beyond, you have to be really reformative in your instructions. You have to tear down these faulty ways of thinking and then build the correct way. So with adults, sometimes it takes them a lot longer to grasp these concepts than kids. And it's so interesting, like in that first unit that we do on truth, 
so very interesting that with kids, we go through the difference between objective and subjective claims. You know, a claim that's based solely on the subject, their preference and their feelings versus an objective claim that the truth of it is outside of us. It's not dependent upon, upon what we think, feel, or believe about it. And the interesting thing is, is with kids, they get it like that. Like, you know, like you have to go over it once and then any claim you say like that, they can just determine whether it's objective or subjective. We're adults. Right. We have been so brainwashed just swimming in this culture of relativism. You know, when somebody says God exists, is that objective or subjective? We're like, hmm. That's a good one. Right. Mm. You know, when I've had some people say, you know, when I do this example in seminars, I'll say this claim and I'll say God exists. And I'll say, is that objective or subjective? And some people are like, do you mean for me or for someone else? And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I, I don't care who's hearing it. I'm saying the claim, these right. words, are right. they an objective claim or subjective claim? They'll be like, yeah, but for me or for somebody else, <laughs> where kids right. get it, like right. either God exists or he does not, like he doesn't poof, pop into existence because I believe in him or right. he doesn't pop out of existence because an atheist disbelieves in him. So that's one thing that I would say needs to be done differently for adults is because we've been so indoctrinated ourselves by the culture, we tend to need a lot more reformative training. <laughs> totally. Totally. So, um, so your, your target age for this curriculum then is, is it, is it your former students? Is it third grade, fourth grade? in that area or you know what would be like the youngest the lowest limit age-wise for this for your curriculum so the curriculum we have out right now targets eight through ten year olds okay. we're actually we're releasing a second curriculum in march which will be the second installment of this which will go a step up and that will be targeted more towards like 10 to 13 year olds but oh. this first one we're targeting eight to ten year olds we say you can go you can definitely go up i mean adults learn from this material so that's our target audience but you can go up going down it really depends because on two things. One, we include a decent amount of reading in the curriculum and that kids, you know, are having to read paragraphs and highlight important information and summarize. And so in a general developmentally, a seven-year-old isn't quite where you would need to be to go through these materials. So we say to hold off until you're eight. However, every kid developmentally is different. I have a friend whose daughter is six years old and, you know, she has been reading since she was three and she, this six-year-old could totally go through the curriculum right now, but she's the exception, not the rule. So again, it just depends developmentally where your children are out. Just like if you have an eight-year-old, you know, who might be a little bit of a struggling reader or just might be a little bit, you know, developmentally not quite where their peers are. We say, wait a year. Um, but yes, so eight to 10 is our target audience. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, this is something you're clearly very passionate about. You're, uh, it's, it's clearly very well researched. What do you personally like best about this curriculum? Like, what are you most proud of as you look back and, and, and look at, you know, what you've created here, what you've developed, what do you like best about it? Well, first of all, I need to say, when I look back on how this whole thing developed, it is just so obvious that God had his hand on this. So what I'm so thankful for is that God is infinitely wise and his plans are way better than my own because so many things went different than planned in this process, but they came out infinitely better because God is sovereign. So that's, that's the first thing I want to say. The second thing that I just love about it, and I don't do a good enough job, I'm, I'm so glad you asked this question because I don't do a good enough job in our advertising actually talking about this, is 
every single part of the curriculum is research-based. In education, we would say that it's pedagogically sound. Every single activity that we do, there's nothing, there's no time that is wasted, but everything, every single thing is targeted on brain-based learning so that we are actually transforming the way that kids think, not in an indoctrination way saying, you know, here's what's true, believe it, but actually getting them to think. And then through that practice, transforming the way that their brain actually functions. So that's what I love most about these materials. And I think it's what makes them really unique in that, you know, they're not only biblically and philosophically sound, but they're also educationally sound and they align with God's design of the human mind. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, man, we I, I'd love to know more about your research methods on this. Um, time probably doesn't allow for it, but it's 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 very it's very cool to see this. Um, and you know, I'm I'm debating whether or not to go off on a, a tangent about <laughs> some of your um, theological presuppositions and and you know how much of that gets saturated into the curriculum do you you're out in i don't know if you feel free to decline this question but do you attend um a cross of christ church i do pastor okay. by tom schmidt <laughs> yes yeah past, pastor tom is a, a buddy of mine i have learned so much from that dude about mm -hmm. evangelism i mean he is in fact i've actually had him on this show or in the uh the early episodes and to talk about evangelism methods that actually work mm -hmm. and man tom schmidt is just he's he's an evangelist and he's a brain i mean he's so it it doesn't surprise me at all that an intellectual like yourself is attending that church i mean he i think he's actually the one who recommended that i talk to you at first I, there, there okay. other, but um okay so that's so that's really cool so then so then knowing that then i will go down this slight rabbit trail if you'll indulge me um because we had this question come through uh, someone wanted to know, Brian Zebarth wanted to know what perspective is the curriculum coming from? Is it reformed or non? So reformed yeah. or, or more of a traditionalist or um, Arminian perspective? That's a great question. And it's one that we receive frequently because, you know, people are obviously concerned with, you know, like what theological tradition is this coming from? So I will tell you that I do have my own presuppositions. However, I worked really hard in creating these materials to make sure that what is included is essential Christian doctrine that would be agreed upon by anyone who would be biblically faithful to historic Christianity. So you can use these materials, whether you're coming from a Calvinistic perspective, perspective or an Arminian perspective. I can tell you just some of the central, you know, the central tenets that we go through in each um, unit is we look at truth being what is real. Truth is objective. It's outside of us that God is the creator and sustainer of reality and therefore truth comes from him. That's why he is the truth. Then when we look actually at who God is, you know, it, we cover that in the unit, what should I worship? Obviously we, you know, we're just scratching the surface of the character and nature of God, but the specific, you know, attributes of God that we look at is we look at him being Trinity. We look at him being three in one unity in the midst of diversity. And we, you know, that's, that's foundational to a historic Christian understanding of who God is. It's also foundational in understanding the, the key difference between Christianity 
and Islam and how we have this God who has given up everything so that he might reconcile us to himself, that Jesus came, you know, and drank the full cup of God's wrath that we might be reconciled to him. Where in Islam, you know, you have this monolithic God and it's not about relationship. It's about submission. You know, that's what Islam means. So we include that we also talk about God being, you know, he taught, we talk about his imminence, yet his transcendence, that God is, he's, he's our creator who is close to us, but he is transcended. He is above us. That, you know, like we are not made out of God, though Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We don't become God. You know, we are, we are different than him. Um, so we look at those, those characters of God, characteristics of God. And then we look at him as, as the creator in the, in the question of how did life begin? And we look at how all of the clues, you know, in life, they, just you know this vast quantity of information found in dna you know just screams designer 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 and as we look at scripture that's exactly what we find and then we when we look at what does it mean to be human we look at humans as being created in god's image we look at us as being both material and immaterial so so body and soul yeah, although some people you know divide it into body soul and spirit um, we just talk about body and soul just because when i look at scripture i think the terms that are used for soul and spirit are, are used interchangeably but you can do that whether you look at it as yeah. you know dualistically or you know as that triad there yeah. yeah and then when we look at morality we look at you know morals they're not they're they're immaterial you know so they're not physical but they are real they're mm -hmm. they're real because they stem from god's unchanging character and they you know they, they stem from his unchanging moral law so those are the those are the basic tenets of christianity that we cover um and so you can use obviously if you are a christian you believe those whether you <laughs> adhere to calvinistic theology or arminian so i hope that okay. answers the question <laughs> um so brian zebarth you can feel free to comment let us know if that did answer the question um it, it answered it for me, although as you're talking, I'm I'm picking up echoes of different Christian thinkers. And I'm just wondering, on a personal note, Elizabeth, wh who would be some of the top Christian thinkers that you personally have been influenced by? I, mm. I, I, have, a, I have some guesses. I'll tell you if I was right or not after you tell me this. Well, I am, well, I'm a slow reader, but I am an avid reader, you know, so there's so many different Christian thinkers that I would say that I have been influenced by, you know, I've, you know, read almost all of C.S. Lewis's work. So I, you know, like I highly value him. Um, you know, Francis Schaeffer, Nancy yeah. Piercy. Okay. I love reading Spurgeon. Um, you know, like then even even modern, you know, <laughs> modern thinkers. They're yeah. like, well, I mentioned Nancy Piercy, um, but also Ravi Zacharias. You know, I'm really big into apologetics um, there. So those those are some of the the big ones who have who have influenced my my thinking. <laughs> okay, very cool. I definitely heard some Francis Schaeffer coming out there, and of course mm -hmm. Nancy Piercy is uh i believe she was a, a disciple of schaefer yeah is that right yeah so yes. so definitely uh heard or that makes sense um i thought i heard maybe a little bit of john frame coming out as well in, um, i do love his systematic theology i love the way that he explains knowledge there in his tri his triperspectival view of knowledge so yes, yeah <laughs> yes. i i wrote one of my capstone papers at trinity for my master's on john frame and so awesome um, yeah big fan of his personally. Um, you know, one of the things that you do, this is a comparative curriculum. And um, maybe you could talk a little bit about that, Elizabeth. 
why make it, why not just teach the Christian worldview? Why teach it in the context of comparing and contrasting it with other systems? You already mentioned Islam, but I, I noticed you also, comp uh, you do comparisons with naturalism, new spirituality, postmodernism. Mm -hmm. Why those four? Why, why not, you know, are, are there any others that you would include in the future? Why those four? And why make it comparative at all? Why not just lay down the foundation of Christianity? Yeah, so first I'll address the question of why make it comparative, and then I'll look at, you know, specifically why I chose the worldviews that I did to include in this. So with the why make it comparative, we, first of all, we live in a very unique time in that, you know, in one day, we and our children encounter more truth claims and information than most people did in an entire decade in the past. So we have to look at where we're at and be wise about how we are discipling. Now, obviously, scripture is very clear that our children need to see scripture more than anything else that we need to be talking with them about it. You know, as we get up in the morning, as we go throughout our day, as we tuck them into bed at night, that we need to be intentional at, you know, instilling scripture and scriptural truths in them. Now, the reason that I go through a comparative worldview study is it's very specific. Now there is, there's this analogy, and this is one reason I do actually encounter quite a bit of pushback within the Christian community for taking this comparative lens. And there's this analogy that's popular in the Christian community that goes like this. When federal agents are trained to detect counterfeit, they're not shown every single form of counterfeit that's out there. They're just shown the true currency. Therefore, when they encounter a counterfeit right away, they'll pick it up. So then the analogy goes, therefore, we don't need to expose our kids to every single counterfeit worldview that's out there. We just need to expose them to the truth. And then when they encounter a counterfeit, they'll be able to pick it up right away. Now, this analogy is good up to a point. Like I mentioned before, you know, scripture is clear. We need to be immersing our kids in the truth of the Christian worldview. However, this analogy contains a faulty presupposition. This analogy presupposes that federal agents are already thoroughly convinced that there is only one true form of currency and that that form of currency is printed and backed by the U.S. government. Now, when we're talking about the federal agents detecting counterfeit, that's a pretty fair presupposition because even counterfeiters agree that in a certain country, there's only one true form of currency. They just choose not to play by those rules. However, if federal agents weren't already thoroughly convinced of that, we would need to take a step back in our training of them and we would need to build a systematic case for why there is just one true form of currency and why that form of currency is the one that's printed and backed by that government. And so that's where the analogy falls apart with our kids because we're living in this pluralistic society where our kids are receiving so many different messages each day. And if we think that they are already thoroughly convinced that there is only one true worldview and that that true worldview is Christianity, we're really fooling ourselves that yes, when they're five, when they're six, you know, they believe whatever mommy and daddy says, and they wholeheartedly believe that. But once they get older, you know, they, there's, there's those questions and those questions are a good thing. <laughs> you know, that's, you know, that's the wrestling that we do with God through these different topics. And we want them to have these questions. So what we need to do is we need to take a step back. And yes, we still need to instruct them in scripture constantly. And we also need to systematically build a case for why the biblical worldview is the one that actually lines up with reality. So that's why I chose to go the comparative route, because I didn't want to just give kids like, you know, here, here's the truth, believe it. 
end of story because they're going to hear so many different things. So I wanted them, A, to be on guard, to understand when they're receiving a message from a different worldview, and B, to be able to evaluate its truthfulness because that is just so important in the culture in which we live. Um, sociologist Oz Guinness, he has this quote that I love, and he says, contrast is the mother of clarity. I always find that I wonder at the gospel more when I see the alternatives. And that's exactly what we want for our kids, that they will wonder right. at the gospel as they see the alternatives. So that's really the why behind why I did that, because this is the perfect, you know, this childhood age is the perfect age to start exposing them these competing beliefs because they're already being exposed to them. They just don't realize it. And then why that, that flows perfectly into the, why I chose these question. I just, you know, I could have chosen so many different worldviews, you know, there, there's, you know, Mm -hmm. there's tons of worldviews out there. What I tried to do was narrow it down to what are the worldviews that they're going to be most influenced by at this time and place in culture. And so, you know, Islam is, you know, a huge religion. That's another, you know, monotheistic religion that, you know, a lot of people, even within Christian circles are just saying, oh yeah, Christians and Muslims worship the same God, where it's like, right. hmm, is that really true? Let's actually look at the evidence. And so want to prepare them to understand some of the differences some of these key differences between Christianity and Islam. And then also chose, as you mentioned, chose naturalism. So when I say naturalism, some philosophers might be like, well, you're not actually doing like pure naturalism. I kind of just summarized, you know, like naturalism, humanism, materialism, physicalism, any worldview that just believes that only the physical realm is real because they're going to constantly face that in science classes and, you know, like in, in so many different realms just in the world around us. So chose that for that reason. And then what I call new spirituality is basically any religion, you know, from the East that has come to the West. Yeah. So any religion that's going to say, you know, like it's really the metaphysical, you know, that's, that's real and we need to detach ourselves. And actually we all have part of God in us, like you're God, I'm God, you know, like all religions, you know, so, so just what they're going to encounter, you know, in the media, with friends, um, you know, in this spiritual, but not religious kind of culture. And then also looked at postmodernism just because that postmodernism has influenced, you know, every facet of life in the West, just this belief of, you know what, like we really can't know truth. It's really arrogant to claim that we can know truth. We need to not force our truth on others. You know, we just have our little narratives over here. There is no big overarching story of the world. So I chose these worldviews, not because they're the only ones out there, not because they're the best ones out there, but just because these are the ones that our children in this time and place and culture are going to face, you know, daily. So that's, that's the why behind it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, it <laughs> as you're talking, Elizabeth, I'm thinking about earlier today, I, I got a haircut earlier. And um, the girl who was cutting my hair, I always, I always try to start a spiritual conversation. Mm-hmm. If I'm in a situation where I'm you know, if, if it's some sort of a, a service like that, or if someone's coming over to my house, I figure this person's going to be trapped with me for the next 30 minutes. Uh, <laughs> I might as well try to, you know, see if I can work my way around to the gospel. And I ended up asking her if she was a religious person at all. Mm-hmm. And and then I said, are, are you are you religious? Are you spiritual at all? And that's one of the questions that I'll typically ask, because usually mm-hmm. people say, oh, no, 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 I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Mm-hmm. And that, sure enough, that's what she said. And for her, Elizabeth, as you're explaining these different worldviews, I'm trying to figure out which one she <laughs> subscribes to, because in one sense, she was a naturalist or a materialist. She she believed in evolution, uh, 
you know, neo-Darwinian evolution, but she specifically believed, she made a, a, a point of this, that we evolved specifically from mushrooms and that after the dinosaurs died out, an asteroid hit the earth. She had this whole, I want to talk about origins. Wow. This whole origin story um, where an asteroid hit the earth and fungi from outer space or from another planet essentially restarted the evolutionary process that turned into us culminated with hum human beings and we're still evolving as well, but we are basically evolved mushrooms. But then she also believed, she said she believed in karma, which I think was mm -hmm. more of the westernized version of karma. Like, you know, it, it's really a biblical concept of, of, um, uh, what you sow, you will reap. Right. You reap what we sow. Reap what you sow yeah. Right. And, uh, and, and so, and she, you know, she kept on talking about how she's spiritual and wants to do good for people. And so it was this fusion <laughs> of Eastern and, Western atheism by way of, you know, Darwin. And then like this, this very post-modernistic fusion of the two of those. And I, I guess if you, if you tackle those four that are on your list, you're going to get probably a, a, at least a majority of what's being believed out there. Even if there is a sort of a melting pot in each individual instantiation right. of those beliefs. Would you right. agree with that? Yes, that very few people are purists right. in their worldview beliefs right. that, you know, like you can't only really in academia, you know, where someone has and not all not always in academia, but it's usually in academia where you find the most consistent worldviews because people have thought through them, you know, so thoroughly where in our culture, we just have this buffet of worldviews, you know, like, oh, I like this aspect, you know, of naturalism right here. And oh, you know what, I like this tiny bit of Christianity here. And oh, I like this bit of Hinduism right here, you know, and we just kind of go through not realizing that like, these are contradictory beliefs, you know, like we can't actually logically hold these contradictory beliefs. So the goal in exposing kids to these, you know, is not so that they can be like, oh, my neighbor's a naturalist, oh, that person's a postmodernist, you know, like that is not the goal at all. Yeah, but we right. want to a help them to see how Christianity provides this comprehensive worldview that explains reality in a way that no other worldview does and actually lines up with what we find in the world. And then Amen. B, so that they can be on guard for, you know, like for these ideas infiltrating them. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we're not even, we're not even like a fraction of a percent aware of how much we are influenced by other worldviews. You know, like that's, that's one of my daily prayers is like, Lord, you know, by your Holy Spirit, convict me of ways in which I am not living out a worldview that is consistent with your word. <laughs> because, you know, I, I'm swimming in this culture and I'm reading your word daily. And so often what I do, you know, I don't even realize that it's come from the culture as opposed to your words. So we want our kids to be thinking through that. And then as you were talking about in getting into conversations with others once our children you know have been saved once they have been reconciled in this relationship with god like that's why we're here like to join in god's mission of reconciling the world to himself we have been given this privilege and so we want to prepare our kids you know how do we enter into these conversations so that they're not scared of someone who believes something different you know or they're not like oh what an idiot you know or like oh you know like that's really dumb but they actually think through like how can i you know engage this person in a conversation how can i get them to think through their worldview and and that's what we want for our children <laughs> Yeah, 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 absolutely. Man, that's that's really good. Um do you um do you subscribe No, this question is coming from another viewer here. This is Nate Werner. And Nate asks if your curriculum is 
coming from a presuppositionalist epistemology and or, or a transcendental slash presuppositionalist epistemology and for the uninitiated listening uh this would be along the lines of well and nate mentions it as well but you know like a cornelius van till or a greg bonson john frame jason lyle uh, do you have an apologetic school of thought i know you went to biola which is more of a classical mm -hmm. evidentialist mm -hmm. um, school of apologetics do you have a particular epistemo epistemological scheme that you subscribe to or a a school of apologetics that you favor one over the other? Yeah. So, I mean, part of it's part of it's due to my training at Biola and then part of it's just due to being an elementary teacher. So I do in these materials, I do take more of an evidentialist approach okay. in there. Yes. Good question. Okay. Okay. There you have it. All right. Uh, guys, if you have any more questions, those who are watching online right now on Facebook or YouTube, go ahead and Elizabeth, has graciously agreed to answer some questions. So this is your opportunity. If you want to know more about how the curriculum was developed or how to implement it, how to, um, you know, pitfalls to maybe watch out for in using Why this. I don't believe in indoctrination, you know, those kind of things. Yeah, yeah, why not? I mean, indoctrination, <laughs> you know, it's worked so well for cults over the, the years, you know, why wouldn't you, uh, why wouldn't you? But um, Elizabeth, as you look toward the, future as you look as you look out across the landscape of christian education and worldview education what are some of the trends you see coming down the pike that christian parents and christian educators need to be aware of what should we be watching out for how do we put things in place now to prepare for those coming trends Yes. Another great question. I think one thing that when I get this question, you know, like, what do we need to be prepared for? You know, there's so many big issues culturally that our kids are faced with, you know, gender and sexuality is a huge one. Um, you know, like so many different things with, you know, relativism being, you know, like such a huge idea. And then just the, you know, the cultural divide that we are facing right now. What I like to do is I usually like to just, to just, have people think back through spiritual formation because that's really what we are about that we want to be forming our kids spiritually because right. there's always going to be new you know like there's always going to be new issues that are coming down the pike that we have to pay attention to and prayerfully consider how we're going to discuss with our kids but one thing i like to think through is is really what does spiritual formation look like and so just you know obviously that's a huge question but then when we think about you know just yeah. just really quickly um spiritual formation when when we look at how we are to love god you know loving god with all our heart soul mind and strength you know that that involves loving god with our affections you know having affections that are stirred towards god it also involves having a mind that that knows how to think the thoughts that honor god and hands that that understand how to serve how to love god through service. So I just always encourage people to make sure that in our spiritual formation of our children that we are keeping, you know, like as, as cheesy as, you know, the head, heart, hands acronym sounds, it's just really easy to think through that, that, you know, like we need to make sure that we are hitting all three points of that triangle, because if we skip any of them, our kids are going to be left with an anemic view of Christianity. Yeah. So that's, that's one thing just Obviously, you know, in what I do, I hit a lot of the head, not because the head is any more important than those other elements. It just, 
in in Western culture right now, it just tends to be what we leave out. You know, we want, a lot of times, you know, want to get the kids to feel really emotional and like they love Jesus, you know, rather than cultivating like these deep affections for him. And then, we'll, you know, we'll take them on a mission trip. We want them to get service oriented, but we never actually then ground them, you know, in understanding these, these doctrine, these deep truths of the Christian faith, and then how these doctrine actually align with reality in a way that no other worldview does. So I just always encourage parents, you know, with everything that's coming our way, there's going to be so many more things that are coming that we can't even anticipate. So just to keep in front of us, you know, to keep in front of us that picture of spiritual formation, you know, like, and to prayerfully be intentional at what we do about developing our kids' affections, about developing their intellect, and about developing, you know, their actions that, you know, are serving God through serving others. Okay. Okay. And when they when the high schoolers graduate you know 75 percent of them of christian high schoolers high school graduates end up leaving the faith and 50 percent of those at least when i was a youth pastor these were the statistics they may have changed since then 50 percent of them end up coming back so you're left with about a retention rate of about 37 and a half percent which is not very good and i think a lot of that apostasy is coming from not having their heads prepared, so to speak, mm-hmm. right? Not having this this um, strong foundation of the Christian worldview laid down, and therefore being susceptible to being blown about by every wind of doctrine, as Scripture mm-hmm. says. So, I love that influence. I love the fact that you're you're inculcating this, and you're promoting the idea of inculcating this at age nine, at age mm-hmm. eight, you know, at, at age ten. That is when that's when they really start to. You know, with my own kids, that's when a lot of those late night before bed conversations come up. Dad, what about this? You know, why why mm-hmm. did God allow that snake to go into the garden? You know, and uh, d- didn't Adam and Eve know it was Satan? And all these questions. And, yeah. and look, if we're not answering them now, if we're not laying down the doctrine now, someone's going to be laying down some doctrine later and they'll be susceptible to it. Yeah. Um, Or those seeds just kind of germinate underground. You know, it sounds like you have, you know, a great relationship with your kids and already have those, those routines established, you know, just where you can have those great conversations at, you know, like as they're getting ready for bed, as they're tucking them in. So just to make sure we have those times with our kids and that we're very intentional, because even if our kids aren't asking these questions, you know, like those things are really germinating underground and one day they're going to come up and those questions are a really good thing. But yeah. if we wait, you know, like until they're out of our house, somebody else is going to answer them and they're most likely not going to answer them in a way right. that has our kids critically thinking. Yeah. 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 Sober. That's a sober warning, a very a sobering warning. Uh, Nate Werner is following up again, Elizabeth. And um, so so Nate, Nate is somebody that um, I know. He's he's an online friend, online acquaintance, mm-hmm. and he and I go back and forth about presuppositionalism. And um, I don't know if you're aware of this for me, but I, I subscribe to presuppositionalism. Mm-hmm. I knew that. Yep. And okay, so so this question is coming from him. I think he's just looking for a little more clarity. And, mm-hmm. and feel free to add as much or as little clarity here as you'd like. But he's asking. He says, "Sorry if I'm being a stickler, but does Elizabeth does Elizabeth man?" I, I podcast for a living. I do this to be able to talk. But does Elizabeth mean evidentialist as, quote, using slash applying evidence, end quote, or, quote, coming to the evidence neutrally, end quote? Just from the discussion, it seems more like the former. Thumbs up emoji. How would you answer that? 
So I, I hope I'm answering your question correctly, Nate. So if I'm not, then please reply in the comments. And so when I talk about using an evidentialist approach, yes, I am talking about like evaluating the evidence, looking at the evidence, not just coming to it from a neutral perspective. And mm -hmm. and when I when I say that, I mean I'm not saying, okay, kids, here's Christianity, here's naturalism, here's new spirituality, here's postmodernism, here's Islam. Which one do you think is true? So I'm not just coming <laughs> right. at it from that perspective. So we are looking at things from a distinctly Christian perspective. And you know, there are times in the curriculum where we give kids the opportunity to push back. So like when I'm teaching, I I'm saying like, I am a Christian and I believe it's true. And here's why, mm. here's the evidence I'm looking at. And when I look at this evidence, I, I wholeheartedly believe that it is lining up with reality. And then we also give them an opportunity. We're not just saying, okay, what do you believe is true? But we're saying, here's what we've studied. What do you, what do you think about that? And the reason we're doing that is not because we have just this, well, you know, whatever the kids come out with, that's just great. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've taught them to think, but so that whoever is working with them as the adult clearly understands where they are in their understanding and in their thought process and has the opportunity to follow up with them. Because what we do, what we tend to do a lot of times in church, even without knowing it, is we expect kids to give the Jesus answer and then we pat ourselves on the back, we give them a Tootsie Roll and we walk away. But what, right. but if they're not genuinely believing that, we want to know that. Not just so that, that we can be loosey-goosey of like, oh, well, I'm really glad you know why you believe Christianity isn't true, but so we can have those follow-up conversations with them because we want to get them critically thinking. I actually, I saw this several years ago. I was teaching um, church at, at the church I was attending at, I'm sorry, I was not teaching church, I was not preaching. I was teaching children's church at the church where I was attending. And in between services, I was, you know, out in the coffee area doing something. And one of the little boys from my class saw me and he goes, oh, no, it's you. And I was like, well, it is great to see you this morning as well. <laughs> and then I said, why are you so happy to see me this morning? He was like, because seeing you here means you're probably our teacher. And I hate it when you're our teacher. And I was like, most of my students love me. Like, where, where is this coming from? And I said, well, can you tell me why don't you like it when I'm your teacher? He's like, because every time I come to church, I just say Jesus as the answer. And the teachers always give me a sticker for it. He's like, but every time I say Jesus as an answer, you make me explain why. And you make me think. He was like, I hate that. You're not supposed to think at church. That's what school is for. And so, you know, like I kind of chuckled and I was like, you know, I know you didn't mean that as a compliment, but that's one of the biggest compliments any Absolutely. child has ever given me. But, you know, when you think about that, it's a huge humorous situation, but it's also really tragic. <laughs> Right, because here, right, right. you know, here is this eight-year-old that that was very articulate and said, I come to church, I say Jesus, and I turn my brain off. Mm -hmm. I go to school and I turn my brain on. And so when I talk about an evidentialist approach, I'm not just saying, you know, we're being loosey-goosey, we want the kids to end up wherever they want to be, but mm -hmm. talking about looking at the evidence that is building a case for why our kids can put their trust in the God of the Bible and in everything that he has revealed to us. And if they're not there, we want to know about it, mm. not so that we can indoctrinate them, but so that we can be intentional in the type of conversations that we have with them, the type of questions that we ask, and even intentional in the way that we're praying and asking the Holy Spirit to be at work in them. So I hope that that answers your question more, Nate. Um, if not, feel free to write in the comments and I'll, I can he, clarify other things. <laughs> yeah, he actually responded. He said, uh, <laughs> it's a little bit of a trollish response, but he says, great, that answers my question. So you're actually a presuppositionalist. Uh, smiley face. So <laughs> I'm just gonna, I'll, I'll leave that out there. And, um, you know, I think 
one of the things I like about this curriculum from my experience with it and 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 hearing you speak about it is you're you're not presenting options and allowing the kids to say, yeah, which one do you neutrally think is true? You're presenting a foundation. You're this is being taught from a biblical foundation, from you know, Jesus said, build your house on the rock, the solid rock of my teaching, and it'll it'll stand. But you're doing it in such a way that they're going to be conversant in the worldviews that are out there, in the different systems that are out there, so that they don't, not only do they not get tripped up, but they can actually have an intelligent conversation with someone who mm -hmm. believes differently with them. And how the heck are you supposed to evangelize? How are you supposed to become all things to all men so that by any means some might be saved, as the Apostle Paul says, if you can't even speak the language of a naturalist, of a postmodernist? Mm -hmm. um, Okay, uh, I think, you know, we've got one more question here from Lucas Giolis. Yes, hi, Lucas. <laughs> and here's what he says. What are the biggest mistakes that parents make when talking to their kids about worldview questions, assuming they talk to their kids about worldview questions? Yes. So I think you you answered part of that question, Lucas, in that one of the biggest mistakes that we make is not talking about these things. And part of this goes back to, you know, just biblical illiteracy in general among the church that we need to make sure that we understand how to correctly interpret God's word. You know, and we're just not cherry picking verses and we're not just using the gospel or Jesus just as a way to get our kids to behave. Because, I mean, heck, that's like anti-gospel. You know, Jesus didn't keep come to make you know, bad, bad men goody mean came to make dead men live. And that's, mm. you know, that that's what we need to focus on. So mm. the, the first part, you know, that we we do need to be talking about these big worldview questions with our kids. And I think one of the mistakes that we make, and this this is something that takes a lot of practice and that I, that I'm still even growing in, is we need to be careful in how we craft our questions and in how we train our kids to think. Because first of all, if we just come out of nowhere and we ask kids, you know, really deep questions without ever providing any training for how to think, they're going to be like, I don't know, you know, end of story. Um, so we need to actually provide some of the background in actually helping them think. Like an example of this would be, I was just visiting a friend in Omaha a couple of weekends ago, and she has, she has kids that are, I think they're, they're two, four, and six right now. And we watched an episode of this show called Wild Kratz on PBS Kids. And they made this, you know, it's a show about um, being out on the savannah, you know, with animals. And it was an episode about the food chain. And they made a comment and they said that a zebra eating grass is no different than a lion eating a zebra. It's just all part of the food chain. I was like, oh, what a great opportunity, mm -hmm. you know, to, to, to get the kids thinking about consciousness, you know, to get them thinking about, you know, lifeblood. And so I just asked the kids a question afterward. I said, you know, the character in the show said that, you know, the, uh, the difference between it, there's no difference between a zebra eating grass and a lion eating a zebra. Do you think that that's true? Do you think there's any difference? Is anything different take place when a zebra eats grass than when a lion eats a zebra? And we had a great conversation, you know, mm -hmm. about how, you know, the grass isn't running away because the grass you know, even though it's it's alive in a sense, like it's not aware that it's alive where it's different when a lion hunts down a zebra, you know, the zebra is running away because it's very conscious that it's in danger. So just taking these opportunities to have these conversations. And then the way we, we ask our questions to make sure that we're not asking just yes or no questions, because it's really easy to say yes or no, but we're actually asking right. open-ended 
questions. And we're asking questions also that don't presuppose an answer. So this might be a little bit of the where I show you where I'm not so much of a presuppositionalist <laughs> um, in that it's really important that, you know, like when we're asking our kids a question, you know, we want them to understand that gender matters mm -hmm. and that being, you know, like while there are certain, you know, characteristics and traits that males and females share, and while not every male is identical to every single other male, and while not every female is identical to every single other female, that there are distinct differences between male and female. And part of it is, is, is based on God's good design, you know, being created in God's image. And we want them to understand this, but we could ask our kids the question, how do you know being a boy and or being a girl is important? If we ask them that question, we have already given them the answer. Being a boy is important mm -hmm. and being a girl is important. Where if we ask them, hmm, what evidence do you think there is that being either a boy or a girl is important or is not important. So giving them that opportunity, you know, like, and then we don't just like leave it out there and like never offer any guidance. Like, yes, we bring it back. We ground it in God's word. You know, like we read Genesis 1, 27 to 28 with our kids. You know, we talk about the difference in genders biblically, mm -hmm. but just asking them these questions that are, that are open-ended and also don't presuppose an answer because we don't want our kids to defend our worldview. <laughs> we want to help our kids develop a robust, biblical worldview. So that was a great question, Lucas. There's a lot of other factors to that, but I would say, you know, be intentional about having those worldview conversations and then ask really good questions. Yeah, uh, that's good. Well, and in doing what you just said in, in terms of asking the kids for evidence, you're really helping them to synthesize a you're helping them to connect what they're learning from scripture, from Sunday school, from their, you know, uh, home family Bible studies to connect that to what's going on in the world. And mm -hmm. if the Christian worldview is true, and it is, it will connect with the real world. We we should see evidence that what the Bible says is true. So the Bible does say, Genesis one twenty seven, male and female are both created by God in his image. And sure enough, you can look, you can look in society, you can look in history, you can look in mm -hmm. science and you can say, yeah, yeah, the world actually corroborates that. Uh, mm -hmm. It's, it actually, it works. It comports with reality. So I, I still think that's that's fairly presuppositionalist of you, <laughs> Elizabeth Urbanowitz. But but hey, you know that's okay. Um, uh, go ahead. Did you did you have a uh, something else to say about that? Nope. You can keep going. <laughs> okay. Right now, there's somebody listening, and they're saying, "Okay, Elizabeth Urbanowitz, I want to do this. I want to train my kids to think like a Christian. I would love to use your curriculum, but my kids are going to public school." My kids are going to Christian school and I don't determine the curriculum and I don't even know how to begin to do that. It's all already set for the year. Is there something I can do at home? I don't homeschool my kids, but is there something I, is there a way I can use your foundation comparative worldview curriculum at home with my family when their primary education is coming from somebody else? How do you answer? Absolutely. So we designed this with you in mind, if that is your case, because what we did is so our the curriculum, it takes 34 weeks to get through if you implement it once a week. <laughs> so okay. that's about the time that you have in your school year. Mm -hmm. um, so we have a ton of families that use this as fa a family discipleship tool. So they'll either use it once a week 
after school, or they'll use it once a week on the weekend. We have a couple families that have, you know, used it a couple times a week over the summer. And especially if your kids are going to a public school and they're going to be just, you know, these worldviews are going to be, you know, infiltrating their 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 minds every day, you know, even more so than if they're going to a Christian school, we'd say this curriculum is definitely for you because you're really preparing them just for what they're already encountering in the classroom. And then similarly, if your kids go to a Christian school and you you know that they're not getting this type of training in school, again, would really encourage you to use these materials because you're just gonna you know prepare your kids for everything that they're facing in the culture and even some things that they're gonna face in a Christian school. So these materials are for everyone who wants to equip the kids in their life to understand the truth of the Christian worldview. Awesome. All right. Um, Elizabeth, how can our listeners and viewers find out more about you, connect with you? If they have any follow-up questions, especially if people are listening to the podcast later on, how can they get in touch with you and follow your work? Yes. So if you go to my website, it's foundationworldview.com. You'll find all the information about all the resources we have there. You can fill out a contact form, you know, that to go through our website that will get to me. Um, and you can also, we, we try to, you know, keep up to date on our blogs just to help you think through, you know, how worldview relates to the current issues in culture and in talking with your kids about them. So if you go to foundationworldview.com, you can find out all of that information there. Awesome. Thank you so much. Elizabeth Urbanowitz, thank you for coming on the Think Podcast Tuesday Twofer. Uh, I've really enjoyed this. And you didn't shy away from some of the the hardball questions that uh, that I lobbed your way. And you were a really good sport about the uh, the title as well. <laughs> so um, you probably you. saved me for the future. So it was great, great things to think about in titles. <laughs> Let me tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to help. I wish I could say that was my intention all along. But <laughs> Really, thank you. I, I wish you well. Um, I'm glad we got to have this conversation after so many people suggested that I have you on. So you've got a very dedicated fan base. Um, uh, yeah, I want to encourage everybody listening, watching, go check out foundationworldview.com. Look, it's worth it just to check it out and peruse the curriculum because as Elizabeth, as Elizabeth I don't know what it is, as Miss Urbanowitz said earlier, um, there just is a dearth of this kind of curriculum out there. You know, I've got my worldview curriculum that I've developed for the Think Institute, which is more for really, it's for adults. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, but, but what is there for the 10 year old? What is there for the nine year old? Um, those, those future adults. And she has really found a niche here and she's really meeting a need. So you owe it to yourself if you're a, if you're a mom, if you're a dad, I know we have a lot of dads that watch this. We actually, we have a lot of dads who are older too, late forties, early fifties. And, and look, this is something for you as well. Get educated yourself and your kids are not too old for you to teach this to them. You know, they need, they need a foundation in the biblical worldview. Go check out the website, foundationworldview.com. And uh, to all of our listeners, thank you for watching. Connect with the Think Institute at thethink.institute. Get our full back catalog of Think Podcast episodes by going to thethink.institute slash podcast. Connect with me on social media. And if you have any questions for me, Joel Sedicase, shoot me an email at thethink.institute at gmail.com. Follow us on all the social media accounts. We are on just about all of them. And, um, oh, I almost forgot. Later on this week, 
if you are going to the Fight Laugh Feast Conference down in Franklin, Tennessee, the location has been moved. It's no longer in Nashville. But if you're going, check us out. We're going to have a booth down there for the Think Institute. My first time doing a booth. So come by, say hi. Um, we'll have uh, some resources for you, some swag. And we're doing a lunch event free lunch on friday so come down and check us out there also later on this month i'm going to be at the cruciform conference in indianapolis on october 23rd and 24th so check us out there look i hope you found something helpful today i know i definitely did this is not goodbye this has just been a little pit stop along the way of your spiritual journey and that's all we have for you today so until next time i hope it made you think